Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning, saints. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. If it's your first time with us this morning or you're just visiting, uh, we, we welcome you. We've prayed that the service might be a blessing to you. And uh, you are visiting us while we are currently in a series, uh, or Advent series this December, asking the question, why was Jesus born? For what end, to what purpose was the Lord Jesus incarnate? Why did God leave heaven become a baby, walk among us. To what end? Is this some kind of cosmic game that God plays? Is this some, something that has no meaning? Um, we are looking at various texts to find the meaning of why Jesus became man. Of course, this assumes something, that Jesus was in existence and alive before he became a man. That's whole series assumes that, that he was living, thriving, enjoying fellowship with his Father in eternity past, but there was a decree, a ruling made in eternity past that he would come, and now we are exploring the reasons for why he came, why that decree was made. Two weeks ago, we saw, uh, as Pastor Michael opened the Scriptures for us, we saw that Jesus was born to find us, that all of us, though we do not think it, we are indeed, in fact, lost. We are wandering the earth aimless, and Jesus came to find us in our lostness. Last week, Pastor Michael also showed us that Jesus was born to free us from slavery, that all men Though they believe they're free, they really are not, that we are bound uh, to our sins. Our sins are enslaving us. We do not think as we, we should. We are affected in our emotions. Uh, we do not act in manners that we know are right. We can't do it because we are in bondage, and Jesus came to free those who are enslaved. And this week, we come to our penultimate session where we consider the third reason, and that reason is this, that the Lord Jesus came to decisively destroy the works of the devil. In other words, the Lord Jesus came to deliver us from the evil one. Our text is not really, it's just a, it's also a controlling text. We're not going to exegete the text. We're going to go to many texts like we have been. But let me read for you 1 John 3, verse 8 to verse 10. This is what God's Word says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. The person of Satan or the devil is indeed one of great intrigue in modern religion, certainly in Christianity today as well. 
The, the idea of the ultimate force of evil, the, the main villain, you know, the main villain in all of our life stories is something that most religious people easily get behind. And even if you're not religious, even if you're here this morning, you're not a religious person, the concept of an evil one, the, the one who is always irredeemable, always against goodness, is an idea that I'm sure you embrace in one shape or form. But what exactly has earned Satan this infamy? Satan, of course, is the ultimate adversary in the Scriptures. His name, Satan, means adversary. He's against. He's the one who is against the people of God. What is it that has earned him this infamy? Why does everyone believe him to be the enemy? The Scripture gives us a lot about this particular person. We're not actually clearly told of his origins as as much as many movies and literature like to speculate. We're not actually told a lot regarding the specifics of his origins. We're not even concretely sure that Lucifer, which is our morning star, if that is actually his, uh, his name. There, that passage where we get that from uh, could be interpreted multiple ways, which not need to be referring to the devil, Satan specifically. Uh, we do not even know for sure what station he was before he fell, before he left uh, what he was to his current form now. But this is what we do know, clearly. What, we, what is spelled out for us clearly. We know that he hates God. And we know that he hates the humans that are made in God's image. We know mainly, clearly, the, the main thing that we are told about this character is his works what he does, the things that he does, what he is occupying himself with. We are told often, again and again, that he is, he is intent to destroy humanity because they bear the image of God. He is like a thief in the night. We don't know all the details about where he comes from and why he is here, but we know for a fact that he steals. That's what we know for a fact. When a thief attacks you in the streets of Joburg or invades your house, you don't know all the things, all the biographical information about them, but the main thing that you know at that moment is that that thief is against you. He wants to steal from you. That's our situation with Satan. The Bible tells us that our fall from Eden was through Satan's temptations. In a real way, we would still be in Eden if Satan was not there. Now, the reason that we're experiencing all that we're experiencing as the, from, the, from being outside, being cast out of that garden, it being shut away from us, being away from the tree of life, all of that came because he had ill intent against us. This is our enemy. Peter describes him as a roaring lion wandering about the earth seeking whom he might devour. That's all he does. It would be one thing if this lion was perhaps locked somewhere in a cage, but the Bible consistently talks about him not only having a kingdom, that is the, the dominion of darkness, but the Scripture also tells us that he commands many fallen dark forces and principalities and powers who are hell-bent on pursuing his cause. And his cause is the destruction of humanity. And here's the rub for you and me. If you're wondering, okay, what's all of this about? Here's the rub. Whether or not you believe in the reality of Satan does not change either his existence or his power over you. Whether or not you believe that he exists or not really makes no difference to him. His existence is there and his power over you is there whether or not you acknowledge it. It's a reality. He is at work, and his work is against you because you bear the image of God. It's not really that you're amazing. It's that God is amazing, and he's against you because you are the one who is, you, you are the creation that is beloved by God. This morning, I want to show you four things 
that the evil one is doing in the world. And chiefly, we will see, as we close, primarily, that Jesus thwarts all that he is doing. We've just seen in our text that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So the question is, what are the devil's works? What is he doing? What is he involved in? What is it that he is specifically doing in the world? And what is it that Jesus has appeared, been revealed to destroy? Number one, he blinds people's minds. He blinds people's minds. Number two, he captures people to do his will. He captures people to do his will. Number three, he oppresses with physical illness. He oppresses with physical illness. And number four, he misleads humanity. He misguides us. He misleads us to a different place. So let's look at our first heading. If you're taking notes, our first heading is number one, he blinds people's minds. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Well, actually, we will start in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we will begin in verse 3. Paul here is talking about his ministry, uh, the gospel that he's proclaiming, the gospel of salvation to all men and women and children who would receive it. But then he talks about those whom the gospel is veiled from those who are unable to see the gospel for the gospel that it is. By that I mean those who are unable to see that the gospel is truly good news. Why is it? Paul tells us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 from verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice two things. First, notice the name that Satan is called here in verse 4. He is referred to as the God of this world. Now, wait a second. I thought God is the God of this world. Why is Satan called the God of this world? Well, this name, which is actually called in different ways multiple times by Paul, this name refers primarily to the fact that Satan is the, not a, he is the major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people who are in existence. His influence encompasses things like world's philosophies, education, commerce. He has his fingers on everything and every part of the world. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, and all false religions of the world are under his control and all false religions have sprung from his lies and his deceptions. No one has ever created a religion not coming from Satan. Everyone who has decided, I'm going to create a religion, follow me, I'm something special. Everyone who has tried to say, no, don't follow Christ, follow this, follow this way. Wherever you find that, where people are told to not follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but follow something else, you must be sure the author and perfecter of that religion is Satan. He has his, his power in, all the way, in, in every way that the people live in the world. Satan is also called in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. In John chapter 12, verse 31, he is called the ruler of this world. These titles and many more signify his capabilities. As an example, to say that Satan is the prince of the power of the air is to signify that in some way he rules over the people and the people in it. 
He rules over them, the prince of the power of the air. He rules over it, and he rules the people that are under over what he rules in. These, these words, these phrases suggest strongly to us that people are being controlled, people are being influenced, people are being prodded this way and that, people are being made to think, and the one who makes them to think in particular ways is Satan. Now listen, this is not to say that he rules the world completely. Okay? God is still sovereign. God is, like you know that, that famous phrase by, uh, I believe it's Spurgeon, there is a devil, but he is God's devil. Right? He is, God is above him. God has given him that power. God has given him that rule. But the reality is that he has it. That's the point here. He has that rule. God in his infinite wisdom has allowed Satan to operate in this world within the boundaries that God has set for him. And I want you to notice now, I want you to think about this. What do people rule for? What do kings rule for? Those who rule, for, to what end do they rule? If a father rules his home, what does he rule it for? Well, he's supposed to rule it for the good of his family. Right? He's supposed to rule it for the good of those who, whom he has, he has been entrusted with those people, his wife and his children. And when he rules over them, he's supposed to rule for primarily their good. Even in the scriptures we're told that governments are given that rule, that authority over us to punish wrongdoers. That's what they're, supposed, that's what they're there for. The, the, the reason that there are these authority structures is so that the society, those who are being ruled over, are benefited. What does Satan rule for? Look again at our text. He blinds their minds. In their case, the God of this world, the one who rules over people, blinds the minds of those whom he rules. Now think about that. He doesn't rule over them and enlighten them. Although he will tell them that they're enlightened. But he doesn't rule over them to enlighten them. He doesn't rule over them to benefit their minds, to help them think more clearly, more clearly, to help them see things as they are. No, he rules over them to blind them. That's what he does. That's, that's how he uses his power. That's, the, that's, that's his power. That's what his power is for. You know, there's, a, there's, an old, there's an old joke. The brain is a wonderful organ. It starts working the moment you get up in the morning and does not stop until you get into the office. In reality, the brain never works fully because Satan makes things that are obvious appear obscure. For those who are, who are being ruled over by Satan, they are blind even when they've had their three shots of coffee. He is powerful. He has the power. He's called a God because he's, he rules, and he rules to blind. Now, why does Paul choose the phrase to blind their minds? Well, to blind the mind is to make the mind not see what is clearly there to be seen. If you're blind, it means that something is wrong. You are unable to see what you should be seeing in front of you. You can't see. He disables people. He makes people weak, particularly in their thinking. Satan blinds the mind, and you might wonder, how does he blind the mind? You don't have to turn there, but I'll read for you. The main way, the, one of the, the main way, the key way that he blinds the mind is through arguments and beliefs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I don't know if you noticed that. There are arguments and lofty opinions that are being raised by Satan against the knowledge of God. That's how he blinds the mind. 
He blinds the mind by making certain arguments and certain opinions become important that they, they blind you from being able to reason properly and think clearly and see things as you should see them. Because these, it's, like, it's like a mind virus that gets into your brain. And while something is obvious, while if you were compost mentors, you'd be able to say, no, one plus one is two. You're coming up with all kinds of mathematical theories now that one plus one is possibly three. I'm sorry, Zach. You know, resident mathematician is probably going to correct me after this. But there's all, all these little arguments now because, you, because he's warped, he's blinded the mind. People can't see things that they should see, things that are obvious. That the scripture says, even the nature says these things are obvious, but they just can't see them. But with regards to the Lord Jesus, there's two things that he does. Particularly with regards to true religion, he does it in two ways. Number one, the way that these arguments, he deploys them by ensuring that people worship other gods. There's two almost converse ways that he blinds the mind with these arguments. He provides these arguments, these opinions. And these two things are against you. They are almost opposites for the two different, main, two different kinds of, of personalities that are there in the world. The first one is that he, he, he floods the earth with all kinds of myths and mythologies and religions and traditions and ideas and rules. He floods the world with that kind of stuff so that those who are religious have an outlet to be religious while still dying. From Scandinavia to Africa to South America to the Maori of New Zealand, everyone in history generally has had different deities that they worship. And Satan is fine with this because it blinds you from seeing the true creator God. So go ahead, worship your God. Worship your people's God. Come with your arguments. No, this is how my people have always lived. You can't come here and tell me that we're wrong. This is how my people have always lived. Satan loves that. Because he wants to keep you in the dark. Argue, make those arguments about, no, this is the way. No, I appreciate, there's a guy who's very famous currently. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say who he is. His name is Andrew Tate. I'm sure some of you know him. This guy who's on YouTube and on all this. And one of the things that he says is he's a, he's a macho guy, all of this just masculinity. Ah, that, that's what he's about. And he says he can't take Christians clearly. He can't take, sorry, he can't take Christians seriously because Christians, somebody can come and say all kinds of things about Jesus and that person will leave unscathed. So he, he converted to a certain religion where if you say anything against their prophet, they'll kill you. And so that's why he chose that religion. And you know which religion I'm talking about. He chose that religion and says, I'm going to follow the religion because those people take their religion seriously and if you say anything against their prophet, they'll kill. That's literally what he says. He wants a religion of strength and power and he views our religion weak. What? Turn the other cheek? What kind of religion is this? And those arguments, they're strong. They sit in people's chests. Choose whatever. Use whatever argument to choose whichever God. Just do not go to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he will make the Lord Jesus appear to be something that he isn't. According to this guy, the Lord Jesus and those who follow him just appear to be weaklings. Why would I as a strong man follow him? See the problem. As long as you're worshipping something, Satan is happy. The second blindness, the second way that he blinds with lofty arguments is almost entirely opposite. It is to make you believe that the supernatural does not exist or doesn't even matter. That there is no God, and if he is there, he is irrelevant. This goes all the way back to wherever you may find there's always been people throughout the world that while the, the world is being religious, hectically, violently so being religious, some people say, I just don't believe this stuff. Uh, I'm just going to deal with what I can see. The thing that I'm seeing, that's what's real to me. I don't want to believe in things that nobody has seen or nobody can show me. I, I deal with sense and what is in front of me. 
And this is what I would argue is probably most prevalent in the West today. Everything is natural. We can explain everything that we can see. Because we've got science, we can explain things. We know where tumors come from. We know where all these things, what makes this work and how the heart pumps blood. We don't really need, uh, like uh, Ricky Gervais uh, calls God, he, uh, Jesus, he's, uh, God. He says, we don't need the invisible sky daddy. We just don't need this invisible person that nobody's seen. We're going to deal with what we can see. Satan is very happy with that. And he's going to blind them by using those kinds of arguments to make you think, forget about God, do not follow God, follow in the ways of the, of the, the ways that you want. Now, when you think about these things, Satan is blinding people from obvious truths. These things are obvious. There is a God. It's obvious. This thing does not need to be argued. Listen, if we were to to talk about the facts of Christ's death and resurrection, I'll grant you that. Those things are not obvious. Those things require witnesses in the Scriptures. They need somebody to proclaim that to you. I'll grant you that. That the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection is not an obvious thing. But do do you know what is actually obvious? The existence of God. That is obvious. And not just the fact that God exists, but that you are guilty. That He is the universal lawgiver, and you are guilty. You have broken His law to the core, and if He is right and just, He would destroy you. If you disagree with me, if you say, no, that's not obvious to me that, that, that I'm wrong or that, that God has to judge people, that's not obvious to me. I think God is a God of love. I have a God, but He's a God of love. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Somebody comes to your house, kills your entire family, you, you get them, you take them to the judge, and you come to the judge, and then the person says, judge, you are a loving and kind judge, please set me free. The evidence is there. I've killed this person's family, I've murdered every, I've done all this evil, the evidence is there, but you judge, I've heard about you judge, you are a loving and kind and forgiving judge, set me free. And then the judge says, you know what, you're right, you're free, go away, go. How would, you, how would you feel sitting there having said, I believe in a God who loves but doesn't judge anybody? So you would, not, you would not accept that, but you want to say that you'll accept it when it comes to God. This does not make any sense. That is a blinding by Satan to say that there is a law, a righteousness that everybody has to live by, but things can just be fluffy. People can do whatever they want and it's all fine. There's no judgment. That is it's palpably ridiculous. And friends, that argument comes from Satan. It is not real. You're blinded to what is really in front of you. God will judge you. You need forgiveness. Your biggest problem is not that you don't have money to last you through, you know, from December 15 to January 25. <laughs> I can see some people already sweating. <laughs> okay. It's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not the diagnosis that you receive this year. Your biggest problem is not your worries about your children or your future. Your biggest problem is that you need forgiveness. God is going to deal with you. What will you do? What will you say when you stand in front of Him? What will be done with your sins, with your lying, with your thieving, with your deception? What will be done? Stop this finagging, being blinded by Satan, arguing this way and that way, and repent and believe in Christ while there's still time. While there's still a time, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be forgiven. Well, there is another kind of binding of the mind that is quite effective. In many ways, Satan knows that it doesn't really matter what people believe as long as people are ruled by their passions. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And you were dead in the, tre- in tre- the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In many ways, it doesn't really matter if you're religious or you're you're a naturalistic atheist. What really matters is that he's going to grab you by making you be ruled by what you want, your passions, what you feel, what you desire to do. Satan knows that he can numb your mind, he can completely shut down your mind by ensuring that you live for pleasure. By ensuring that you live for what you want. You might ask me, what kinds of pleasure? Hate. That's a pleasure, that's a passion. Some people are just fueled by a fight. Do you know those kinds of people? Fueled, Justin J. Why do we have the name Karen? Right? Just, you, know, you, know, you know that, but what it's called? It's called the, the Karen, right? Oh, please don't, don't let this go over. There's a, there's a thing on the internet where somebody is being, just wanting to fight, the person's called the Karen. I don't know where it starts from, but it's just a thing on the internet. Why do we have that? Why is that a thing in people's minds that there are certain people who just constantly always just want to fight? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because it is a passion. There are certain people who just just can't, nothing's going to work unless there's some kind of a fight. There has to be some enemy. There's this, you can't just live at peace. Drink a glass of, you know, whatever you want to drink, just some water, relax. No, there must be a fight. No, you can't park there. Other people, the other kinds of pleasures, greed. That's a more popular one, greed. Wanting more stuff. Stuffing your face. Wanting more and more and more all around here. Wanting more. Greed. It blinds the mind by making you controlled by your passions. Your passions just now, as long as I can just live However I want, and do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, Satan's very happy, even if you can come here to church on Sunday and weep when the lyrics are going here. You can weep, you can be emotional when come thou found is singing. As long as you are controlled by your passions, Satan has you. Satan's effective strategy is to hold you by your passion. And that is one of the works of Satan. He will blind our minds by all kinds of means, making us think that things that are real are not real, and numbing us using our very own passions that are fallen. Well, that's the first thing, that he blinds the mind. Second is that he captures people to do what he wants. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. You can come there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26. Paul here is, is giving instructions to Timothy that this is how a man of God is to conduct himself when he's interacting with people who have been preaching and talking nonsense. People who have been being involved in all kinds of genealogies and just arguments and all of these things. And Paul here is telling them, this is, how, this is what you ought to do. Paul says in verse 25, be kind, be gentle. And then in verse 26, because perhaps God might free them and they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We're South Africans. We're very, we're very familiar with the word capture, state capture. That there is someone whose last name, whose last name begins with a G, who's at the back controlling how things happen. Are you guys following me? Who's back there controlling how things are done, controlling, telling some, you do this, do this, do this, do this way. There's a little voice at the back. We South Africans are you. We know what that is about. This is what it's talking about here. He's saying that, that people have been captured by the evil one to do the evil one's will. In other words, he does not come just to destroy you, but he uses you in his destruction project of others. He doesn't just come for you. He comes for you, and then he uses you to to come for others. You become a tool, a pawn in his hand, either with your passions or your mouth. You bring temptation. Often we think the temptation just comes from Satan, but the Lord Jesus told told us, woe to the one who tempts even the least of these. It will be better for them that they were 
If they were never born, then what I'm going to do with them? Because he uses people to bring temptation. Bob Dylan wrote these lyrics in his famous song. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. That is very true. I don't know much about Bob Dylan. I actually had to Google his name because I just know the song only. I found out it's Bob Dylan, so I don't know who it is, so please don't come at me. Do you know what this guy did? I don't know anything about him. I just know the song because the song is always stuck in my mind. It's a true song. You will be, you'll have to serve somebody. The reality of the human condition is that no one is actually their own king. Do you know that? You're not actually your own king. You don't actually rule yourself. Much ink has been spilled on the topic of freedom and how we're all pursuing rights towards self-determination and, and to determine the course of our lives and all these freedoms. But the reality, friends, is far more complex. Satan's power and work is such that he works in the intricate systems of thinking that captures people to do his will. That is why Paul can say that we war not against flesh and blood. But our fight is in the cosmos, in the, in the unseen realm. That's where our fight is. In many senses, when you're fighting with the person who's being controlled, you're only just fighting with the pawn, and you're leaving the chess player untouched. Paul argues, don't fight with the pawn. Don't fight with this one. Pray and ask the Lord to win the battle with the chess player. Satan is the source of all temptation. He is the one, friends, who makes you return to the evil thing that you hate. Much like a dog returns to its vomit. Why do you go back to the things that you hate? Satan. He's the source of all temptation. He captures people and he makes them do his will. Number three, uh, he oppresses people with physical illness. In... Uh, in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 8, we find the story. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had, been dis who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And then the Lord Jesus said this in verse 15, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. One of the many reasons that the Lord Jesus healed was to show his power over Satan in oppressing people physically. There are numerous people in the scriptures whom we find oppressed physically, not just because of anything, but we're told, like in this example, that it is because of Satan. Now, it is not correct to say that all physical illness comes directly by the hand of Satan. That is nowhere near true. But it is equally not correct to assume that Satan has no hand whatsoever in physical illness. The story of Job, if we held that view, the story of Job would be a problem for us. Job, you remember what, you remember what happened to Job's body. No, the, the, re, the real reality is this, that Satan, we could say, is directly or indirectly responsible for all physical illness and suffering on the earth. Because, number one, he tempted Eve. When he tempted Eve, and Eve fell, and all of humanity with her and her husband, that brought death and decay and sickness onto the world. And so, he is responsible 
because he's the one who introduced the temptation that led us astray, that allowed us to be killed because of our own sins. And in some cases, like in some of these examples, he has direct involvement. The point is this. The point is that Satan is involved in the, in the pain that humans live with, in the decay of our bodies, in the struggles that we experience because of our bodies, our bodies not being right. He is involved either directly or indirectly. He is responsible. That is one of his works. And so when Jesus came, Jesus came and healed people to show that he has power over Satan. He can restore that which Satan has destroyed. Fourthly and finally, and this is the one I want you to turn to, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. We've seen Satan blinds the minds. Satan captures people to do his will. Satan oppresses people with physical illness. And finally, Satan misleads. He deceives. That's what he does. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. Paul here is talking about false, uh, false apostles in his day that he was dealing with uh, in Corinth. And he says this from verse 13. For such men are false apostles. They are not true apostles. They are false apostles. Deceitful workmen. They're not true, trustworthy workmen. They're deceitful workmen. Disguising themselves as, as apostles of Christ. They come as though they are apostles of Christ, but really they're not that. It's a disguise. It's an act. And this is what Paul says in verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, <coughs> excuse me, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. If we were to sum up all of Satan's work that he's doing on the earth, we could sum it up in this way. His biggest work is deceiving and leading astray. Why are people lost? Why are people thinking wrong? Why are there as many religions as you can imagine? Why can't you even trust a true statement anymore? Because you know that there's some kind of deceit in it, perhaps. Why is it that we, we live just not trust, trusting? We can't even trust the news. Everything is because he is the deceiver of the world. He deceives this way. He'll keep you hateful and angry, so he just make, he deceives you and feeds you this information. But it comes as enlightenment. It comes as truth. It comes as wise, as clever. You know, it, does not, it never comes as evil and gory. It comes as well-dressed. That's what he does to deceive you. He comes and tells you that this is life when what he really has is death. He comes and tells you that this is good when it is evil. There's all kinds of articles. It's amazing to me. You know, when you're, when you're thinking about... When you're thinking about... Uh, sometimes when, I, when I'm researching for a sermon, doing reading studies, just trying to keep my hand on the pulse of how people are thinking in Johannesburg, and it's one of the things that's amazing to me is that there is almost no fact that's uncontested. So you, you can say, for example, fathers are necessary for the home. Fathers are good. We, we need fathers in the home. This is what's good, and these are the things that are evident when fathers are not in the home. These are the things that happen, and so we need fathers in the home. Sociologically, just out there, people can say that, but then there's going to be other studies that come. Ah, fathers are abusive. Fathers are like this. There's more negative to fathers than good. It's better if their father's not there. You read about sexuality. No, it's, there's, there's studies galore that show that this promiscuous lifestyle of sleeping with that person and that person and that person, that is destructive and it's destroying people. It's, the, the, the studies are there, but you're going to find others that are saying, no, you need the experience. How do you know compatibility is not just about... There's all these things. There is no fact out there that is not contested. Why? Why? Because Satan's job is to deceive. 
Satan deceives. Everything comes. It comes like this. It's wise. It's clever. It's good. It's not. Underneath it, there's, a, there's a, uh, an old phrase. I think it comes from a hymn. No, I know it comes from a hymn. Talking about God and his providence and how he works on the earth. And it, this phrase says, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That is, while things are, that, which means, in normal people speak, if, while things might be hard for us today, God is, is working for us. It is for our good. It might feel hard, it might feel painful, but it is for our good. Well, that phrase is exactly the opposite when it comes to Satan. Behind a smiling proposition, he hides a knife. He hides a deceitful, destructive, killing knife. Behind an apple that seems good to eat, he hides poison deep in there that will destroy you. That's what Satan does. He is a deceiver. It's what he did, that's what he did with Eve and Adam, and that's what he is doing today. And so our text says this. The text that we read at the beginning says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy everything that the devil was doing. When you read the stories of Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, it is a loud hint that Jesus is here to open the eyes of the heart of God's people to see the truth. While they've been blinded by the evil one, here's a loud hint. Jesus is here to open the hearts and minds that have been darkened and blinded. While Satan captures people to do his will, Jesus sets them free to do the good will, the will of the Father. While Satan misleads and deceives, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. You don't need to find much. You don't need to look far to see what Jesus means when he says he loves you. Just look at what he did for you at the cross. He does not come making loud announcements about himself. He comes and he dies. He washes the feet of his saints because he loves them. And while Satan kills with decay and sickness and disease, Jesus heals and brings everything to completion. There is a remarkable conversation uh, between the Lord Jesus and two demon-possessed men in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, and two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. People couldn't pass that way because these two demon-possessed men were very violent. And behold, these two demon-possessed men, these demons come cry out and say to Jesus as he shows up, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to, dis to torment us, to punish us, to destroy us, to make us feel punishment and judgment before the time is here? In other words, in this conversation, there is an acknowledgement that Christ has come to torment Satan and all his work. His works. This text is cataclysmic. It suggests that the work of Satan and all of his minions has an expiry date. And that expiry date is announced by the, rev the revealing, the coming, the appearing of the Son of God. Jesus comes and he will torment them. Now, at that point, he had not come to torment them at that time, but that is telling you their time of torment is coming. And of course, the book of Revelation paints it to us that they are among, the, Satan is the first one thrown into the lake of fire. Did you know that? Did you know that Hollywood has lied to you? When Hollywood says Satan is there in hell, you know, ruling over hell, everybody's doing things and Satan's the one in charge of hell. You know, Satan, Hollywood has lied to you. That's not true. Satan is the first one being punished in hell. He's the first one thrown in because of all the works that he has done. He's the first one who will, who will experience eternal gnashing and weeping, eternal torment, the destruction that never ends, the heat of fire that cannot be quenched. He's the first one. 
him and all those who work for him. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. Jesus has come to free us. If you're here, if you've suffered at the hands of Satan, the liberator has come. The revolutionary has come. If you have suffered at the hands of warped thinking, your own warped thinking, the one who's here to free you from it has come. If you have suffered from disease and illness, the one who has come to destroy disease and illness forevermore, to bring us to a kingdom where there will be no disease and illness, he has come. This word, Messiah, this word means so much, not just for the Jews, but for us. It means deliverer who delivers us from all the oppression that we have received at the hands of the evil one who has deceived us, deceived our forefathers, deceived all the peoples of the world, and captured them to do their will, to do his will. He has come. Repent and believe in him. And to you who are saints, who love this Lord Jesus, this is your Savior. He frees you. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told we have been freed from the dominion of darkness. We are no longer under his power. He has no claim over us. No demon's going to possess you if you're in Christ. No demon's going to have control of you if you're in Christ. You are now entirely and completely in the house of the strong man. And that strong man is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, deliverer, deliver us. Oh, redeemer, redeem us. Oh, Savior of men, save us. Lord, I, we are under no illusion that everybody who is here this morning is free from the power of the evil one. We cry out to you for our children, Lord. Let them not stay in his kingdom longer than they have to. Free them, remove them from his kingdom and bring them into yours. Post haste, Lord, we ask, please, those who are friends and family, please, Lord, free them from the dominion of this dark one. And thank you for coming, Lord, to free us. Not because there's anything in us that's worth freeing. We were not the pretty damsel in distress. No, we were evil. We were destructive. We were dead in our sins. But yet you came as ugly as we were to free us. We praise you for this, Lord Jesus, and we ask that you'd continue your work in our midst to free men from this kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.